Hello, I'm Alistair. And I'm Andrew. Welcome to Season 10, Episode 1 of Seen From Above, an informal podcast about the cool things happening in Earth Observation. Check out seenfromabove.org for the podcast archive and show notes. Follow the show on Twitter via at EOSeenFrom and using the hashtag SeenFromAbove. In this episode, we talk with Shay from ISI. Let's do the news then on the 28th of April, 2021. Yeah, so basically, since our last episode was released, it's been mega news a couple of weeks. There's so much stuff. Belize Geo did a really good job of summarizing most of it on EOChat on Twitter. Microsoft has made a big announcement about its planetary computer, and they seem to be continuing to do that. I saw today that Geo and Microsoft are working together to try and get some uh, testing projects, I think, up and running on that. Google Earth, the other big players, uh, have now got time-lapse into the product. Planet have announced their Carbon Mapper program, which is going to be a series of new satellites that are going to be launched and working to, to look at mapping carbon, obviously. GDAL has also announced that it's getting financial sponsorship and support, which is brilliant news. RSGIS Lib has joined Twitter. So if you're not familiar with RSGIS Lib, that's another library and tool set that's worth checking out. And another thing I saw was that awesome GEE community datasets catalog has a web page and a whole load of things have been updated on there. So that's worth checking out as well. So all of these things were absolutely brilliant and they've been talked about all over social media. So I'm, I'm not going to really spend too much time going through each one, but I am really interested to see where Microsoft goes with its planetary computer idea. So I, I think that's definitely something that we'll be coming back to in the future as that gets developed more and more information starts to come out about that and the types of data that they're using and the types of analytics that are able to be done on top of that. And then the other thing that personally I, I think is really important is um, the GDAL financial support and the fact that they're now sponsors uh, who are keeping GDAL going in terms of finances anyway. And hopefully that will ease some of the pressure on the developers and bring new developers into the fold, which have just really improved the longevity and the sustainability of the GDAL project. Did any of these sort of catch your eye <laughs> well, i was going to say and that's it for the news but you kind of kind of ruined by uh, a sense oh, of humor there but never, never mind <laughs> um yeah the biggest geospatial companies today aren't geospatial companies it seems yeah microsoft they did a talk at the cloud native geospatial day i seem to remember and there was talk about some of the stuff that they were doing so i had some inkling that this was coming but i didn't know when or what it was going to look like and obviously all we've got is screenshots mm -hmm. what i'm looking at the moment is um well effectively a dashboard <laughs> <laughs> this is how we've all settled on communicating our satellite data processing for a dashboard it's interesting it's in private beta I wonder if they're too late into the game. I also wonder how much does it cost to use it commercially? The general reception has been pretty positive, I think. And people who are general Earth Engine users have been pretty embracing of it rather than like, oh, well, you know, why do we need yet another tool? I think that was probably the biggest thing that caught my eye. 
the support of GDAL is, you know, phenomenal. And the companies that are supporting that are, are listed on their website. Uh, I haven't got it in yeah. front of me, but, um, you know, they're, they're the people. But also the, the smaller companies that are contributing to it. I, I say it all the time, actually. That these are the ones that, that really resonate with me, the, the ones that aren't massive companies who, who don't have huge budgets. So I've got, you know, huge, huge respect for the, for the smaller companies involved there. And they don't necessarily get the highlighting that the, the other larger companies do. So actually, I've just got those sponsors up. So yeah, going from uh, the silver level, we've got Spark Geo, Coordinates, um, Map yeah. Gears, and then gold level, Esri, Safe Software, and Google, and then platinum level, Planet and, and Microsoft. Yeah, so like the silver level companies I'm talking about there, you know, the, yeah. the, the ones that, you know, maybe not everyone's heard of, but are really sticking their necks out and saying, you know, we'll support this. Um, yeah. Huge kudos to them. So with all that being said, <laughs> I try and look at, try and take a sideways look at a, a very busy couple of weeks or three weeks since we last spoke. Noel Gorlick from Google Earth Engine has a very good blog. He's done loads of work. In fact, I saw, I, I attended one of his courses once in London when Earth Engine was sort of just coming to the forefront and what you wouldn't give to look at his code samples, but his blog post, a little gold mine, little treasure thing there. If you're interested in the very specific, you know, sampling and, and histogram matching, it's very interesting. So this is a nice little um, blog post, really nice post. And hopefully there's, there's more to come from there. Secondly, Geopandas. As you probably know, massive fan of GeoPandas, even though it's Vector, but I think GeoPandas is the most compelling geospatial Python library. Martin Fleischmann, he has been working on this interactive plotting, and I don't know if it's been put into the mainstream, but I pulled it down to give it a test, and it was just amazing, you know, being able to interactively look at your data and hover over and click on it and all this kind of stuff within a notebook, but also you can you can save that out and share it with anybody you like as a html just one file on a html file so that's really useful for conveying geospatial data to people who haven't got a gs or whatever just so i'm clear what would have happened in geopandas before would it be a, a static map or something is that the um, difference here well the difference here is really the integration with folium but but most uh, of the okay. plotting that you okay. would do would be yeah fairly static certainly within within jupiter but that doesn't mean to say it definitely was what else do I want to talk about? Well, weirdly, hackathons. I posed this question on EO Chat a couple of weeks back, which was, how do people feel about hackathons generally? How do they come across? Because I've spoken to people in the past at events and they've said, we don't want more hackathons. We want paid work. Yeah. We don't want to give up our knowledge. We're looking for meaningful project work. And got some interesting responses I find these kind of discussions on Twitter, as, as we've said before in the past, quite quite engaging because you get to see it from other people's perspectives. And there was an amazing one that came out of the University of Washington's ISAT2 Hack Week. Loads of tutorials and, and stuff. And it, it's incredible what, what came out of that hackathon. And then other people came along and started saying that it was really good for early career because you got to see real world potential problems and then you could use your academic experience or or whatever to start integrating with, with the data. 
So I, I remember sitting down and reading through that thread as well. And I think the other thing that really stood out for me was the fact that people were saying that hackathons are really useful if they're well managed and set mm -hmm. up with a clear definition of what you're trying to do, rather than just chucking some pizzas on a table and saying, right, guys, give me your ideas. And it sounded like this ISAT2 hack week was one of the best sort of organized hack events. I, I think sometimes I live in my own sort of containerized ideal world and I, I sort of see a hackathon, you know, sent to me by email and I think, oh, I haven't got time for that. What's the benefit? But maybe there is more benefit than, than I previously thought. So I was really grateful for the feedback and the interaction. But yeah, what, what, what are three weeks for Earth observation? Um, so I've just got two very short things I wanted to quickly highlight. I put together a list on GitHub of geo podcasts just because I was getting to a point where I was losing track of what was active and what wasn't and what was going on. And if you've got anything that you want to add, then make a pull request or ping us a message on Twitter and I'll add that in. And the other one was something that someone sent through to me. And it's about a company called Suez, not to do with the canal, I don't think, which has announced the launch of a product called Master Plan, which is basically looking at uh, pipe deficiency data, trying to improve operational efficiencies for water utilities. And they're using satellite data in order to do that. So they're using synthetic aperture radar. Two questions sort of arose from this. And one is, is this EO starting to go mainstream where large sort of infrastructure companies are just beginning to use satellite data basically to give them the product that they want and then selling that product and that service through to their large corporate customers? Or is this just another version of something that's already been done? Because we've seen lots of projects in the past about can you map water leaks? Can you map infrastructure to do with um, water pipelines and things like that. Mm. So I'm, I'm sort of in two minds. Part of me is thinking this is brilliant because actually it's not really a news story because it's just big company uses cool data to create service for other big companies. And the fact that it's not a massive story is sort of interesting. Yeah. And on the other flip side, I'm thinking, well, have they done anything new and exciting with it but without knowing more about exactly how the product works or the service works then I, I guess i can't really say on that front mm, good name though master plan algorithm so yeah that was just a sort of a thing for thought really and with that i think that's it for the news Okay, this episode, we are joined by Shay Strong from iSci. Shay, it's great to have you with us. Could you maybe provide a brief intro to yourself for our listeners? Hi, yes, thank you. It's so nice to be with you. I am Shay Strong. I am the VP of Analytics at iSci. And I've been there, uh, I guess, going on six months now since last November. So relatively new to the SAR world, um, new to Finland, but super excited to, to be in the space. ISI, as many of our listeners might know, is one of the companies that's basically changing Earth observation at the moment. So how did you find your way there? Has SAR-based analytics always been a passion and a dream? <laughs> no, I wish. I, I, I wish I could have said that I was like in, in it from the start, but, but no, not, not at all. In fact, my original passion was astronomy. 
and and I think it's even a bit of a stretch to say that it was a passion. I think I kind of stumbled into it and and kept hoping that it would connect and click through my PhD and then kind of wandered my way into data science eventually after working in defense and spending a lot of time like working on spacecraft for both NASA and, and US defense contracts and eventually wound up with this really interesting opportunity with ISI. And I think I had at the time you know, I had been aware of SAR. I had been uh, working in remote sensing for some time, and but I had always been an optical infrared person, and so it was a domain that that quite honestly intimidated me <laughs> pretty substantially. I think of all of these, you know, I think of SAR and and like I don't know the types of people I know that do SAR and profoundly academic and you know, and incredibly um, cerebral, <laughs> I guess, which sounds funny coming from the domain of astrophysics, but. Regardless, I, I think I was a bit intimidated by it. <laughs> yeah, it was just this really lovely opportunity to, to come in and help build out the analytics team at ISI and, and figure out how we could make use of SAR in really creative and interesting ways to develop solutions that I think are, are a bit unprecedented in, in terms of the capabilities that, that they can provide. Cool. Actually, that segues nicely into my next question, which was <laughs> going to be, I saw something on Twitter recently about some analysis that I'm guessing your team did for the flooding in Australia. I was just wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about that analysis and the types of workflow and tools that you're using. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So one of our core focus areas is looking at uh, flooding. So natural catastrophe in general, but flood has been kind of our core domain on the analytics side. It happened, it started well before me. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I'm coming into this and, and, and helping where I can, but it's a solution that's evolved and it's, it's fairly comprehensive and leverages our um, high resolution SAR data, but, but also leveraging, you know, other types of supplemental data. Um, you know, whether that's digital terrain maps or LIDAR data, or, you know, of course, a multitude of different types of vector data available as a function of location. So, so a lot of different inputs. And I think because ISI, you know, ISI, we haven't been around that long. <laughs> it's, it's only been a couple of years. We're up to 10 satellites as of the beginning of this year. And, you know, we're definitely still very much creating a lot of our internal tools and capabilities. So, building as we go and learning how to scalably deploy these capabilities as we go. So I think one of our ultimate goals is to open source pieces of what we're building, but still still definitely in the process of doing that. Uh, it, it's really cool that you know companies like yours are, are bringing in people from outside of sort of the geospatial arena. And I see it happening all, all over the world where sort of data scientists and computer scientists and web developers and what have you are getting attracted to handling the amount of data that's out there. And I think that's really cool. On that point, I mean, I've seen on Twitter again from your Twitter account that you're frustrated by the fact that the potential of Earth observation and geospatial generally is huge, but the tools aren't quite ready. And I would say that's a common cry, both amongst the people who are moving into the uh, sort of geospatial arena and, and also those of us who've sort of been plowing our way through it for some time. Um, I was just wondering if you could maybe elaborate on your thoughts on that. So I, are there specific barriers that you find day to day that you really want to try and overcome? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a really weighted question. And, I, and I, I'm, I'm going to be completely honest that I felt really hesitant to post uh, you know, to make a tweet along the lines of that, because definitely, you know, I'm coming in 
to the SAR domain with uh, relatively no background in SAR and, and I would say very heavy on the machine learning data science side. And I think, you know, firstly, like there are quite a few people like EO College is a great example of trying to democratize a lot of SAR tooling and, and just, you know, remote sensing tooling in general. So I, I don't wanna minimize some of these contributions, but I think what I've noticed in general in the trend, like if you just open up GitHub and you look for SAR tooling, it comes with a bit of overhead. It's not particularly user-friendly and perhaps those are <laughs> charged um, fight-worthy words, but you know, I think when you talk about having somebody install a, an operating system that that is, you know, instead of a Docker container, like that's a bit, overwhelming. And, and so I think in terms of what can we do to dockerize some of these capabilities and to create Jupyter notebooks or, you know, tooling that I think are a little bit more user-friendly when it comes to the data science side or, or just the analytics side of things. One of my first forays into to machine learning was going into deep learning. And that was around 2014, 2015. And, and this was, you know, TensorFlow was getting big and um, you know, everything was was suddenly available and accessible, and there was a tremendous amount of of capability, and I think desire to lower the barrier to entry. And so I think we're kind of at at the same time and space with with SAR tooling, where we're on the kind of the cusp of a revolution of of building new capability, more user friendly capability. But up to this point, it was very much driven academically or driven. Um, funded, you know, from a government perspective. And so it was really intended to be leveraged by experts, you know, people that were living and breathing this in a very specific kind of environment. And that's not necessarily where we are with geospatial data science. And it's slowly changing, but, but it's very much a bit overwhelming at the moment. You should never hesitate about putting out posts like that. And the SAR side of things too, like it's complicated by the fact that you have, you know, not just an intensity, you know, a digital count as a function of pixel. Right now you have the complex phase information. <laughs> and what do you do with that? And, and I think there's a, a big community push towards like, how do we define, like, what is the SAR data cube? What is, what is SAR for machine learning and AI? Like, can we leverage computer vision techniques and, and, and take advantage of what's been built in that domain? But tweak them in such a way to take advantage of the profound physics that I think SAR is uniquely suited to bring to the table. Definitely need to maintain the, the links with physics, I think. So, so there's 10 satellites at the moment mm -hmm. with plans to launch more, yeah? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so yeah. How, how many in the constellation is planned? Do you know? I mean, it, it changes quite a bit. Um, so I probably don't have the up-to-date numbers. <laughs> um, but, but yes, definitely like quite a few more through, through the end of this year. Oh, for this year. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it's 10 meter pixel resolution on the ground. Is that right? Goodness. Now you're going to catch me off guard. Um, oh, no. I'm just, I'm just sort of like <laughs> trying to set this up. It's X-band as well, isn't it? It is X-band. And I think, you know, from with, with strip map, we can go down to, to 0.25 meters uh, pixel right. on the ground. Yeah. Um, I think on standard like it's it's typically I guess that's more spotlight sorry so spotlight is 0 0.25 0 0.5 meters roughly and then strip map is more kind of on the meter level so pretty high resolution you know and I think we're we're just really scratching the surface I think on on some of the the capabilities from the analytics perspective that we we want to look at I mean in the natural catastrophe world being able to 
look at really small, minute changes as a function of time. I mean, that, that's another domain where SAR excels. How quick does the data come down? How quickly could you do an analytic? I mean, I think it depends, like it depends a bit on the mode, but like, for instance, with our flood solution, like, you know, right, right now we're targeting less than a 24 hour turnaround time. And, and I would say like from an imaging perspective, like definitely, you know, much less than an hour, but, but really it's all of the analytics on top of that in terms of, you know, making sure we have the correct SAR processing steps and, We've invented this whole flood analysis ready data, right? This ARD protocol in order to, to process this our imagery. So so executing against that like adds, adds a bit of overhead. But the downlink itself is is pretty quick. Yeah. No, I, I'm not, I wasn't trying to catch you out. I was just sort of trying to set the scene because that's the kind of stuff that um that helps us add to the to the analytics side. The easiest way I've used SAR data was through the data cube for the open data. Is that something that you guys are looking at? The, the data? I mean, you did talk about it a little bit earlier. I, I did. I did because it was hot on my, my mind because I think I gave like a talk where I was booed off the stage at ISA last week. <laughs> I'm not sure. Booed. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm being a bit dramatic, but I think we had been so focused on analysis ready data and, and SAR data cubes as it relates to our solution development. And I think with SAR, it's really unique. Like you know, when you think about the optical domain, you know, there's there's kind of obvious things about like radiometrically calibrating the sensor and, um, you know, maybe pen sharpening the imagery or, you know, the, the set of processing steps that are really critical for, for having that analysis ready data. But for SAR, like fundamentally, like the type of, of DTM that you leverage for performing the, the, the terrain correction, like can completely impact your analysis. And, and the way that you maybe, you know, remove some of the noise or you despeckle the data or the, the, the way that you do multi-looking, which is also, you know, another technique to, to kind of improve your signal to noise ratio. Like all of these decision points <laughs> really, you know, ultimately impact the output. And so I think where I've, I've wound up on this, like, like from a, my perspective is like, I am, arguably not interested in ARD <laughs> or, or like defining a data cube, but, but really I'm interested in kind of analysis ready services. So yep. being able to facilitate through tooling, like, like smart, easy to use tooling, facilitate the end user to create the right type of data. I feel a bit boxed in, you know, about like trying to conform the data into some of these, these specific types of formats. And I, I understand like there's a, a rationale to make the data more accessible to, you know, the non-expert, but we do that today. Like we have, you know, our, our core data products are um, the GRD, which is kind of a, a ground, ground registered uh, geotiff. And then we have the SLC, which is the, the, the single look complex image. And it has all the, you know, it's preserved all the phase information and all the raw signals. And then we also have, you know, kind of that quick snapshot, like here's a quick ortho, you call it, you know, or a quick look so that you can yeah, just kind of look at it and, and visually incline yourself into what, what is in the scene. It's an interesting topic. And I think I'm, I'm definitely landing on the side of, I think the services are fundamentally more important for the solution development and for the application development than having some kind of analysis ready image. This is the question I most wanted to ask you. With the SpaceNets, all the way up to SpaceNet 6 that introduced our data, we've come from this computer vision and deep learning, non-Earth observation familiar group of people. I went looking at the results of that, that again, and, and I've spoken to a few people in the past about it. But the predominant thing that I see on my lazy Google search is it's just one band and the training data doesn't 
quite stuck up at the moment. Are you seeing something similar with what you're doing? Maybe this kind of goes back to how the data has been prepared for that consumption. And so in this case, like for kind of your standard machine learning applications, or, you know, if you want to apply a convolutional neural network to it, I think the easiest thing you can do is, is just use this kind of one band or maybe three band image that's, you know, registered to the ground and has some similarity to how we think about optical data. It goes, you know, into this domain of like losing some of the relevant information. So for instance, I think where like machine learning can be incredibly powerful with SAR is the angle dependency, both kind of the acquisition angle and then also the backscatter angle. It's like hugely dependent on the types of materials and, you know, whether it's man-made or, or what it's, you know, fundamentally made up of from a, from a principal perspective. And and that those pieces, I fear, can get lost in you know the way that maybe we characterize some of the data for for machine learning right now. And then on the other side of that, and I'm not quite sure if this answers your question, but I think yeah, there's a huge lack of training data, like uh, amazing lack of training data in SAR. It's not easy to come by, and, and we definitely invest labor in terms of bringing in the right expertise to create that training data. But then again, it's what is the application? Like you can get open source SAR training data sets now for like defense assets. And like, that's not that exciting. Like I don't, I don't really personally care about tanks and different orientations, but I think where it matters is now like going into the domain of really rich, you know, agricultural information or man-made surface information. And that I think as a, I don't know, as a greater community, we might need to, to put some more thought into how we want to go about doing that. Mm, that's a really interesting point. Yes. I mean, there's there's new capabilities that are now like minimizing the need to build huge training data sets, right? You have semi-supervised or self-supervised networks now that, that are really, that have come a long way. But at the end of the day, it's really like you do need the data. You do need yeah. the training data. And that's, you know, that's a big time sink on the labor side. I've always sort of been concerned myself, but I've been at conferences and the, the salespeople have come along and said, oh, we'll just, we'll just sprinkle the machine learning onto the data <laughs> and uh, every, everything will be solved. And I'm like, oh, I'm cringing a bit at that. Yeah, it, it, it's definitely been like the, a bit of a, the bane of my existence. I think the last job I had, I actually had my analytics team. We, we made this robot out of cardboard and we covered it with aluminum foil and put like a little <laughs> TV antenna on his head. And then we had this slit for a mouth and we joked about like okay this is the machine learning robot you want machine learning you, you know, just slide your little form inside of his mouth and you know out, out comes the machine learning you should totally bring that to a conference <laughs> I, i'm pretty sure we still have it in the old office yeah I, I don't know so i guess that is to say like it's refreshing to be thinking about this now in the context of of what we can do with sar and how we might be able to do things differently do you see much work that sort of the fusion of optical and SAR data? I mean, I, I think this is really interesting and I'm not quite convinced. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sure like exactly what the outcome is or what, what the value is like, okay, there's the obvious things of SAR interpretability. I think this was something huge on the defense and intelligence side of, yes, you have these incredibly insightful analysts that, can look at a SAR image and know exactly what's going on. But but then more often than not, you probably have quite a lot of people who have no clue what they're looking at. And so 
you know, from a data fusion perspective of where you can bring in the interpretability into the SAR image and couple that with, okay, what you're looking at is actually a vessel at sea under this kind of sea state, or it's a building structure. And this is approximately like how it's oriented, like that can help. Is there any utility in fusing high resolution X-band stuff with say the Sentinel-1 C-band stuff? Well, I mean, absolutely. I think, I think we have definitely brainstormed a bit around like, how can you come up with complementary, you know, SAR bands to, you know, look at different physical properties or penetrate different, you know, depths, you know, through, through foliage or through, you know, other kinds of targets on the ground or something. And so I think there's some really interesting things that could be explored in that domain, you know, not even just necessarily fusion across platforms. So, so say, you know, taking Sentinel one and and our X-band, like, yeah, there's, there's some really interesting kind of data fusion you can do on kind of this tipping and queuing domain and, and being able to look not only at different wave bands, but also at different uh, resolutions. But within, you know, a system, like being able to engineer the, the C band and the X band and, and leverage that technology together in and of itself is, is something that's really interesting. But yeah, I think we still have a hard work cut out for us just in X band. Yeah, I mean, X band is one more for structure, isn't it, than some of the other SAR data sets? Yeah, yes, absolutely. It's definitely, you know, more limited to, to structure on the ground and that's where it shines. And, and that's why, you know, in building out some of our natural catastrophe responses, you know, it's, it's definitely advantageous to be operating in that. Shay, thank you for speaking to us. That has been a real education through all sorts of different topics. So it's been really, really cool. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Shay. It's a delight to speak to you. We encourage you to drop us a line through Twitter using at EOSceneFrom, where you can find a vibrant community based around the podcast. Thanks for listening, and that's it for now. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Alistair. Bye. Bye. I love the fact you live in your own containerized worlds. Docker run map, Andrew. <laughs>